I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 1. Now, as we enter this chapter of Romans uh, chapter 8, it's sometimes been described as the mountaintop of the whole Bible, that um, we just trek up to the mountain. And then we get to, to look over the whole landscape of the scripture and just kind of see the wonder and the beauty of God's saving work through his son, Jesus Christ. And really, Romans chapter 8 is an incredible book with a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope for us as Christians and for us to understand who we are in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's especially a stark contrast of where we have been in Romans chapter 7. So we're going to see that here in just a minute. But one of the things I want to do is I want to take you to a scene. I want you just to, to imagine with me that you're in a courtroom and that you're standing before the judge because you are guilty. You've committed a crime, and the list of the charges are wrong. And you know in your heart of hearts that you're guilty and that you've been caught dead to right. The, the DA doesn't even want to plea bargain with you because he has you right where he needs you. And so you're standing in a courtroom and you know what's coming, sweating, you're nervous, you're dreading hearing the banging of the gavel, the sound of guilty, and the bailiff's dragging you away to put you in a holding cell for you to be sentenced to whatever jail you're going to be put in. And so the judge says, Arise, he's going to give you your sentence. And he begins to list the charges one by one. And after each charge, you're, you're leaning. You know you're going to hear the word guilty. But after each charge is listed, you hear not guilty. You're incredulous. I've committed these crimes. They know I'm guilty. The DA doesn't want to have anything to do. We, we didn't make a bargain at all. But one by one. The judge says, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And then after the charges are read, he says, you're free to go. And you leave. That's the feeling of when we come to Romans chapter 8. And we hear the words of Scripture. We know we're guilty. We stand guilty before God. The charges against us are innumerable. Everything. Everything as it relates to God's law. We have broken God's law. And yet the judge says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And as it goes on in verse 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray 
and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word and that you will show us Christ and that we may see your glory through the preaching of your word. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we begin looking at this text, and if you can remember from a couple of weeks ago when we were in Romans chapter 7, that the whole feel of Romans chapter 7 is, is a sense of heaviness, there's a sense of guilt, and there's this, there's this tension that we live in. And yet when we come to Romans chapter 8, there is a break in the spirit and the feel of the text. It's no longer this tension There's no longer this this fight that we feel that we're in. But now as we enter into Romans chapter 8, and especially there in verse 1, there's this feeling of exuberance. There's this feeling of victory. There's this feeling of blessedness. And in the previous section that we looked at, namely Romans chapter 7 and verses 13 through 25, that was filled with tension, struggle, and also a hint of hopelessness regarding the fight against sin. In fact, we saw that Paul was really personifying this when he was speaking in the first person singular. He was talking about I. He was talking about himself. And Paul wanted to do good, but he would eventually practice the opposite, the very thing that he hates. In fact, we see this really in these verses that's very clear when he says in verse 15 of chapter 7, for what I am doing... I do not understand for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. So he was talking about this tension of living in this present evil age, that even as a Christian, he has this massive struggle to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has this massive tension and this struggle and this fight that he has against sin every day in his life. And we know that as a Christian... Paul, and as all Christians should, should be, is that we hate our sins. And that what we want to do is that which is in, court, in, in accordance with God's word, to live for him, to live a life that is pleasing for him. And that what we hate is we hate anything the opposite of that. We hate sin. And so Paul felt that deeply in his own life, in his own spirit, in his own bones. In fact, it reaches the climax at the end of chapter 7, when Paul cries out in agony, really spiritual agony, when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul thanks God that he will be rescued from the body of death, as we saw in chapter 7 and verse 25, where he says, I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, or uh, through, uh, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But this rescue that he gives thanks to God for refers to a future bodily deliverance. So he's crying out, who will rescue me? That's in the future tense, isn't it? And then he says in verse 25, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, which is telling us that he believed that Christ Jesus, our Lord, will rescue him from this body of death. That's, that's in a distant future. As we're, as we're left there in Romans chapter 7. But what about the now? 
What about the present? Are, are Christians supposed to continue to live with the tension in the already and not yet and be filled with self-loathing because we hate our sins? Are we just to live under this crushing weight of guilt and condemnation? What do we do now? What do we do right now in the present? As we are living, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and awaiting the future hope of glory when God will redeem all of us. Well, he will redeem our body. He will redeem our spirit. He will eradicate sin from us forever. But as we still live, as Christians, we still live in this body of sin, this decay in body, and with it comes the propensity for sin. So what do we do right now? Do we continue living with the feeling and the spirit of Romans chapter 7, where we continue to say to ourselves, for I do not understand what I'm doing, and I practice the very thing that I hate to do. Can you imagine living every day of your life with the struggle of sin and just saying, I hate myself. I hate that I did that. I hate that I have that thought. I hate that I talk to that person that way. I just hate myself for that. And as Christians, we're not supposed to live with that type of self-loathing. Yes, we live with a sense of hatred for sin. We want sin to be removed. We don't want to live with self-loathing all of our life. And so if this is taking place in the future, what about the now? And that's where Romans chapter 8 comes in. Because if you remember, as we talk about Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 is only part of the story. It's not the whole story. The rest of the story of the Christian life is Romans chapter 8. So Paul's answer to these questions about, you know, what, what about the now? What do we do to right now? Are we supposed to live with this self-loathing, this crushing weight of the guilt and condemnation as a consequence to sin? But Paul's answer to these questions is that now, right now, at this very moment, not in some distant future, but right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse to me is incredible. That Paul can say that with such um, clear, um, you know, this just a clear way that he makes this statement that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is this noun condemnation is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Now, the verb form of it is mentioned many times. But it's only, the noun form is only mentioned three times in the Bible, and all three are actually in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 and verse 16, then in verse 18, which tells us that condemnation came to all through one's disobedience, Adam. So we stand condemned because of the sin of Adam and how that has now passed on to us. Now, I know what you might be thinking. I don't think it's fair that I should be condemned for Adam's sin. And that's okay, because you've got plenty of sin to be condemned for. So you can stand on your own and be condemned for all the sin that you have. So in Romans chapter 5, we stand condemned because of one man's disobedience. 
And then in the previous section, in chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, Paul narrates the struggle of disobedience in his own life, even as a Christian. So the weight of condemnation and judgment by God rests heavily upon him and does so on our own life as we consider the struggle with sin and how we continually break God's law. Yet because of the life and the work of the Lord Jesus, there is now, at this very moment, to those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. There is no condemnation now, not later, but right now. And we can live with the hope that we do not presently now, at this very moment, and will not face God's judgment in the future. Why? There is no condemnation. Now, the reason there is no condemnation is because, as a believer, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now in Christ Jesus. So this phrase, there's now no condemnation, is not without qualification. It is not a general statement that is true of everybody. There are scores of people in this world, and maybe some of you still presently in this room, that are walking under condemnation. And the reason that you're under condemnation is because of your sin, because you're breaking God's law. And the only way to be where there is now no condemnation is to be in Christ Jesus, to be in him, to be under the umbrella, so to speak, of who Christ is. So now, as earlier stated in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, all stand under the condemnation of God because all are sinners and guilty and weren't God's just judgment. But the Lord Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has made a way for no condemnation. And it is only in Christ Jesus that there is no condemnation. And the phrase, in Christ Jesus, speaks of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus. Now, as noted earlier, in Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3, where Paul gives this metaphor of our relationship with Christ. And he does it through baptism. Baptism speaks and demonstrates and illustrates the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. We have been baptized into his death and we have been raised to walk in the newness of life. So we are connected. We are identified uniquely, distinctly, intimately with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is not because we're not sinners or because we're not guilty, but the reason there is now no condemnation is that since we are in Christ Jesus, that's exactly how God sees us. So in other words, when God looks at me in my life, he doesn't look and see Corey. And all the sin in Corey. But because I have repented of my sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am now in Christ Jesus. So when God sees me, he sees me in Christ Jesus and his perfect life. And his sinless life. 
That's how I'm judged. I'm not judged by what I have done. I'm judged by what Christ has done for me. How Christ has lived a perfect life. And not only has he lived a perfect life in my stead, but he also took my condemnation on himself on the cross, as we'll see here in a moment in this text. So he judges us in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he judges us as if he would judge the Lord Jesus. And when God sees the Lord Jesus, he sees his own son, who in his humanity never sinned, never broke the law, but fulfilled the law of God. Outside of Christ, we are condemned. But in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And as we move on in looking at this, so he makes this statement, there is now, at this moment, presently, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he moves on in this text and he gives us reason for this. Why, why is this true? He further explains it. So if you note in verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So there's a series of explanations that follow as to why there's now no condemnation. And the reason that there's now no condemnation is not only the Lord Jesus, but also the Spirit of God who takes up residence in the believer, who's a gift from God, who's poured out at the day of Pentecost and now indwells in all believers, all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit frees the believer from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a juxtaposition in the usage of law here in verse 2, and as it's going to be used in verse 3. In the first instance, in verse 2, it is used, or it's connected with the Spirit, and in the second, it's connected mainly with the flesh, which results in sin and death. Now, for clarification purposes, the usage of the word law speaks about the Mosaic law, that has been amply discussed up to this point in Romans and also in chapter 7 in particular. And there has been a negative consequence of the law, namely that the law is used by sin as a beachhead. It establishes the beachhead or as an opportunity to multiply sin. And we saw how that was demonstrated in Romans chapter 7. So here's the law. We see what the law is. And the law says, do not lie. And what do we do? Our sin nature starts to, to arouse a little bit. And it uses that law as an opportunity to make us lie. So the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with our sin nature. We saw earlier that the law, as Paul has made very clear, is not sin. It is not bad. In fact, he goes as far as to say that it's holy, just, good, and spiritual. But outside, the, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, there is no freedom under the law, only sin and death. However, in the realm of the Spirit, the law does have a positive role in the life of the believer. If the law is from God and it is holy, good, just, and spiritual, then through the work of the Spirit, the believer can conform their life to reflect the law. So it is only through the Spirit that the law can give life that was intended to. Outside of the Spirit, outside of Christ, the law only brings sin and death. We, the, the Bible actually tells us that the law was to give life. 
And in a sense, that's even true for us as New Testament Christians. And the reason that is, is because we're now in Christ Jesus. And it is Jesus who has kept the law perfectly, who has fulfilled the law, who has lived in absolute innocence as the law is concerned. It's an amazing thing to think about that the Lord Jesus Christ was able to do that. That, that even the very thoughts and the intents of his heart were turned toward good and fulfilling and keeping the law perfectly. And so since the Lord Jesus Christ has kept the law and he has lived that perfect life, there is now life for us. All right, so death came, judgment comes as a consequence of disobedience. The reason that Adam and Eve no longer had life they were excluded from the garden, from the tree of life, and it was because of their disobedience. So if they were obedient, then there would only be life. So the Lord Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, and he lived in absolute obedience. And consequently, there is now life. So in that way, in that sense, the law brings life. So the law is good, the law is just, the law is holy, the law is spiritual, but the only way that it's of any good and any help is in Christ Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, really what's going on here in this text in verse 2 is that it's a fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, in verses 31 through 33, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, said the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so it's through the work of the Spirit that he takes the law... He puts it in our mind, and he puts it on our hearts. And now, God is our God, and we are his people. So there is no condemnation, because now that we're in, the, in Christ Jesus, in the realm of the Spirit, the law actually works for our advantage and to our benefit. Now, there's a further explanation of why there is no condemnation. It goes on in verses 3 through 4. What the law could not do because of sin, apart from the Spirit, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So for there to be now no condemnation required more than God simply writing it off, like we do on our taxes. We have a loss, we just write it off, and then we're okay. So there was more to, to this for there to be no condemnation is more than God simply writing off or reducing the debt to zero. So God can't just arbitrarily forgive sin and say, okay, that's okay. Because that's not who God is. God is holy. God is good. And if God is going to be holy and God is going to be good and righteous, then God must deal with sin. So he's not, when we think about God, I think there's a tendency sometimes in our in our minds, especially in Christianity, sometimes what I call sentimental Christianity, uh, maybe um, 
you know, kind of a more emotive type. As we see God as this grandfatherly figure, doesn't make any difference if we, if we, uh, you know, how grandparents are. That they can do no wrong. In fact, they do something wrong, and grandparents just reward them for it. Well, that's not who God is. God is a holy, just, righteous, and good God. And sin is assault against his character. And so he cannot just arbitrarily forgive sin and just say there is no condemnation. Our sin requires condemnation by God. For God to be God. And so what did God do in order for us to have right now at this moment no condemnation? So he had to do something infinitely greater for there to be no condemnation as a result of sin. And so what he did, hopefully you already know this, is he sent his own son. As we see there in verse 3. Notice, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So there are key words that we find here in verse 3 that speak to the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and shows us how it is that he was able to condemn sin. So the use of sending, which precedes likeness of sinful flesh, suggests the preexistence of the Lord Jesus. He did not begin in the flesh. The Lord Jesus always was. As we learn in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There was never a time when the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was not. So God sent His Son, which speaks of a mission. There's a purpose in His sending, but also Embedded in that word is the idea of the pre-existence of Christ. That, that there was a time that he was before he was in the flesh. Before his incarnation. So Jesus is the Son of God. There was never a time when he was not. We also see the phrase own son. Notice there, as it says in this text, that God sent his own son. He sent his own son, which reflects the deep relationship between Jesus and the Father. And this is sometimes called high Christology, which is another way to express that Jesus, the Son of God, was truly God. That Jesus was more than just a man. He was a man. He was truly a man. He was unique in that, but he was also truly God. And it speaks about this deep relationship and we actually saw this as I read John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 18 that, sh- that really brings out this truth about this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We, we saw in those verses that to see the Lord Jesus is to see God the Father. To know the Lord Jesus is to know the Father. In fact, Jesus gives us an incredible glimpse into his relationship with the Father when he says of the Father in John 17 and verse 24, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Think about that. There was never a time when God the Son was not. Just as the same when God the Father was not. They've always been. 
in eternity past. And what were they doing in eternity past? Jesus says, before the foundation of the world, you loved me. They were in a relationship with one another. So the, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is about relationship. And so it is through the Lord Jesus that he shows us who the Father is. So this speaks about Christ as being the Son of God. And then if you'll notice, there's another descriptor here that speaks about the Lord Jesus. It talks about that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Maybe to say it another way, human flesh, which is a description of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, that God, the Son, was incarnated. He became human flesh. Now, he did not just merely resemble human flesh, but he participated truly in sinful flesh, human flesh. Now, the the usage of this word sinful here in this text does not in any way suggest that Jesus sinned or even that he was capable of sinning. The use of likeness is a qualifier. In his humanity, he was unique, but it does not mean that he did not participate in the old age of the flesh or that his body was not immune to the effects of sin. The effects of sin, temptation, sickness, decaying, pain, sorrow, dying, and the like. And it also means that because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that he's able to truly identify and sympathize with us in our humanity. With the person of Jesus in mind, now we are ready to see exactly how there is now no condemnation. So God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. For sin, or as some translations interpret this phrase, as a sin offering. Sin is condemned through the sacrificial death of the Son of God. He took upon himself the condemnation that you and I deserve for violating God's law. It was in this one act, this once and for all sacrificial death, that God was able to condemn all sin. And the reason it only took one act of one man for the sins of all the people who ever lived who deserve eternal condemnation, is because the one who was condemned was the eternal God. So it wasn't just a man who died on the cross for our sins. It was God himself in the flesh. And that's why, in a matter of six hours, when he cried, it is finished. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he is the Son of God, who came in the likeness of of flesh. Now, I want to take you back to the analogy that I used earlier of you being in a courtroom. And you're hearing the charges, and they're saying one after the other, not guilty, not guilty. But one of the things that you learn later is that the reason that you're not guilty is because somebody took the charges on themselves. And it just so happened to be that it was your defense attorney. An outstanding man, upstanding man, who didn't deserve all of that, but instead he stepped in the way that when the judge was reading all of the charges, without you knowing, your defense attorney took the blame and went to prison for you. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does for those who are in Christ Jesus. He takes 
our punishment, our sin, our condemnation in his very body. He's punished by God. All the wrath, all the judgment that you and I deserve is poured out upon the person of Jesus Christ. And he takes all of our condemnation. And what's even incredible about that is that in taking our condemnation, he is able to say it is finished. He rises again on the third day. And because of his resurrection, now you are justified. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, just think about this in another way. As we see in verse 4, it gets even more incredible. Now, as we go further in Romans 8, it just piles on of how incredible this really is. Look, look what happens in verse 4. It's not only that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but look what happens. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When it comes to the law, we are guilty. We have sinned. But because of Jesus in his perfect life, his sinless life in fulfilling the law, not only can it be said that there is now no condemnation, but it's also said of us that we have fulfilled the law. Now, just going back to that analogy, just imagine. So the defense attorney takes all of your guilt. So what do you get? The defense attorney is a powerful person, has an incredible law practice, and what you get is everything that belongs to him. You're guilty. The defense attorney goes to prison for you, and he leaves you all of his wealth. That's what the Lord Jesus does for us. In fact, as we'll, as we'll see later, that we, we become sons of God, as sinners who have sinned greatly against God, we become his sons, we become his daughters, we become joint heirs with Jesus, which means that everything that belongs to the Lord Jesus, as far as the inheritance, we share in that. So we see this, this incredible idea here that we, we note there that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're guilty as far as the law is concerned. But now the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And then, of course, notice this last phrase. I think this is very important for us to think about, and especially as we go further in Romans chapter 8, it might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the purpose of sin being condemned in the person and work of the Lord Jesus is that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus, there is no condemnation. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in you. In other words, when it comes to God's law, you are innocent. It can truly be said of you. Why? Because you're a good person? No. No. There's not a good person in this room, not even my grandmother. Now, I know some of you are shocked that I said that. But there's not one single good person that's ever lived except for the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's now no condemnation. We are innocent, not because we're good people, but because you are now in Christ Jesus. Now, don't think for a minute that this is only forensic. Or to say it another way, that this is just about your standing before God because it is that but more. You are righteous because of the Lord Jesus Christ, but since you are now 
in Christ Jesus, he has transformed your life as such that you do not walk or live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God's grace is such that it comes and it changes your life. Not only does it change your standing that you're now righteous, but it also changes your life in such that your heart and your mind is now inclined to walk according to the Spirit, to live in accordance to God's Word. Why? Because there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.